Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Amen. So, <laughs> our college group gets excited about the word. Amen. We do it on Monday nights. We bring it here. I'm excited to be with you this morning. Now, I don't want you to get up and leave, but I want to tell you the title of my sermon. Bear with me. The title of my sermon this morning is How to Take an Exam. <laughs> Underneath your seats of Scantron and a pencil, we're going to be taking some play. <laughs> I made that joke earlier. I didn't sure if it worked. Listen, we're glad you're here. <laughs> we're glad you're here. And the title of my sermon is How to Take an Exam. And there's a reason why I've titled that my sermon this morning. As a college pastor, I have the great privilege to work with many college students uh, who have midterms. We just got through midterms, thankfully. Um, exams and papers. I'm doing my master's, so I, too, have exams and papers. And... Um, a few weeks ago, we made it through midterms. I heard one of my college students say this in regards to the midterms. And you've probably said it at some point in regards to tests. They said, well, I'm just a bad test taker. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when my grades were slipping in high school and my mom was knocking the door, I want to know what's happening. I tell them, mom, I'm just a bad test taker. She said, you're not a bad test taker. You just don't want to study. Amen? <laughs> There's some moms in here like, oh, he's a real one. <laughs> Test-taking, when it comes to test-taking, when it comes to evaluation, we get a little nervous, we get a little anxious. And not, when our college students tell us they're bad test-takers, I tell them, you're not a bad test-taker, you're an anxious test-taker. You worry. When someone asks us a question or when someone wants us to evaluate ourselves when, it's, when it comes to life or when it comes to looking in a mirror and, and really asking hard questions, we get nervous. And most times, one of the things I wrote down about this, is most times you're only anxious when taking a test if you believe there's a real chance you could fail. You're only anxious when taking a test if you believe there's a real chance you could fail. When you're confident about an exam, which I don't know what that feels like, but when you study for it, <laughs> when you study for it, when you put in the time, you might not get a perfect score, but you know you're on the right track. And uh, an exam is nothing more than this. If you want to know what it is at its core, it's this. An exam is asking the right questions and answering them honestly. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Paul pushes the Corinthians to do this. In fact, his direct exhortation, his challenge to the Corinthians is the challenge for all of us, and I'll tell you this right here. When it comes to our faith, are we willing to ask ourselves the right questions, and then are we willing to answer them honestly? Are we willing to ask ourselves the right questions, and then are we willing to answer them honestly? Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, we know that, and he loves these people. What you have to understand before we read these texts is that Paul loves these people. He's ministered to these people. He has cared for these people. But ultimately, there's a breakdown in their faith. There's a lot of sin that's occurring at the church in Corinth, and he's wanting them to get down to the root of it. He's wanting them to find out why. It's this final exhortation in the letter to them. Now, for us, we're very quick to evaluate other people. Amen. <laughs> we're not as quick, and I'm guilty of this, we're not as quick to evaluate ourselves and to look within. That's Paul's direct challenge to the believers. Now, his purpose in writing to them here, especially in his final exhortation, is, and this is gonna be the entire message. It's, I got two points, very easy, nothing complicated, but it's all about maturity. When we read this text, you're gonna see Paul mention twice about becoming, and not just mature, but fully mature. See, they struggle with sins such as sexual immorality. They struggle with sins such as division, gossip, disunity, was a lot going on. They knew the Lord, but they were struggling with how to really live it out. And Paul, when he comes to him, his, his whole challenge is the same challenge I have for you this morning, to self 
examine, to evaluate where we are in the faith. And there's two areas we're going to hit on this morning. So if you will, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 5. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 5. Paul, in his final warning and exhortation to them, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test, but we pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. For we can't do anything, this is verse 8, for we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray, here it is, that you become fully mature. And then going down to verse 11, finally, his final word to them is this. Brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature. He says again, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. One of my favorite quotes on peace is this. Peace does not mean that you will not have problems. Peace means that your problems will not have you. May the God of peace surround you. Does anybody want peace this morning, amen? What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at two areas to evaluate in your life that if you're on the path of growing to be like Jesus, you're going to have peace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be here today to worship your name, to know you, God. I thank you for every guest in the room this morning. I thank you for every Bellevue member in the room this morning and everyone in between, Lord, thank you. God, that we can come together and worship, Lord. We know that there's places around the world where people can't do this. So, Lord, we don't take for granted the ability to worship, to preach, to have fellowship, and to pray. And, Father, I do pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, that they would give their lives to you today, that they would not run from Jesus, but that they would come to you as they are. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, the first one. First question on the test. First one on the exam. Number one, spiritual maturity, how you love Christ. The first area that Paul deals with, with the Corinthians, is number one, spiritual maturity, how you love Christ. Now, when Paul tells the Corinthians to test and evaluate themselves to see if they are in the faith, he's not necessarily pushing them to evaluate if they are saved or not. God bless you. <clears throat> Natural reaction. <laughs> Paul believes that a lot of them were saved. His push is to see if they're abiding in Christ. But in a room this large, all across the balcony, we have to stop at the beginning of the sermon and realize that before you can ever abide in Christ, you have to come to a personal relationship with Christ. You have to come to know Jesus as your Savior. And in a room this large, with this many people here, there, there are people here that don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I'll tell you this, it's the best decision you could ever make. As I shared last time, I gave my life to the Lord when I was 21 years old, and the Lord has radically changed my life ever since. And if you're in here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know, for 2,000 years, nobody has been able to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And aren't you grateful for that? Amen. <laughs> that you cannot disprove truth. Jesus lived. He walked this earth. He was sinless. He was the perfect son of God. And he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, and three days later, he rose from the grave again. And you... The Bible says that you can have 
eternal life, that you can know your creator, that you don't have to walk through this life not knowing who made you and who put you here. Because I believe that when you know who made you and who put you here, your life will have purpose because he's the one that gives it to you anyway. So if you're looking for purpose, just five years ago, I didn't have it because of Jesus. I have my purpose. You can come to know Jesus today if you would repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus, and confess him as your personal Lord and Savior and believe in the resurrection. And in fact, I believe many of you, I don't know where you are, you know, but I believe that somebody in here came here this morning because Jesus Christ wants you to have a relationship with him today. For everybody else, for us as believers in Christ, it does not matter how long you have been a believer, whether it's a year or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I want you to understand Paul's exhortation is maturity to abide in Christ in every area of your life. And in this passage, is not the only place that speaks about maturity. I'll turn your attention to Hebrews 6, verse 1. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Not only that, one chapter before, I'll give you Hebrews 5, verses 11 to 14. The author of Hebrews says, we have a great deal to say about this. And it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Don't you love that? Man, so direct. Like, man, you too lazy. You eat too many sugar cookies. You're not outside cutting a yard. You ain't doing what you're supposed to do, and that's why you can't understand what's happening. Laziness. I struggle with it. I know I'm not the only one, amen? Especially right now. There's a lot of candy going around. <laughs> Since you have become too lazy to understand, laziness will keep you from maturity quicker than a lot of things will. It's because David wasn't where he was supposed to be that he fell into the sin he fell into. You've become too lazy. And I love that. My parents love that verse too. <laughs> verse 12, although by this time, and I love this, pay attention to this, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Ouch. <laughs> In my study, that convicted me. In other words, what it's saying here is because of your training, believer, because of the time that you've had to grow in your faith, you should be out teaching others. But because of laziness, lack of devotion, Lack of discipline, whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. I know my struggle. Whatever it is for you, whatever that sin is that's holding you back from maturing in Christ, you can't go out there and teach others because you're not letting God teach you. And I'm not getting on you. I'm in the same boat with you. I asked our college students a couple weeks ago. I said, man, if I sent you out there, which the text was that night when we were preaching, I said, if you went out there to go teach somebody what God's teaching you, would you have anything to teach them? Or is God not teaching you right now? And for all of us, it's a great word when it comes to our quiet time. What is God teaching us? And if we don't know, that's a red flag. Because I know what God's teaching me. I just don't like it. <laughs> Which is where a lot of us is. We know the truth. We just don't always like it. You should be growing. You should be mature. You should be teaching others. Move on from milk. It's time for solid food. You're not a baby no more. You're not a baby no more. You are growing in maturity so that you can reach others. Verse 13 goes on to say, not everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. <laughs> but solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Scripture speaks all about maturity. And we've been doing a relationship series in our college ministry right now where we've talked about things like singleness, dating, engagement, and marriage. We've been talking about friendships. And I wanna give a great challenge to you because we talk a lot about the relationships in our lives. Hear me for a moment. We focus a lot on the relationships in our lives. 
We talk about our friends. We talk to our friends. We look at the person we're dating or we're engaged to or we're married to, or if it's been a long time, we don't look at them as much as we used to. We talk a lot about the people around us and the relationships that we're in. What I want to ask you this morning is a hard question. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> it's going to be a long sermon if I do that for everyone. <laughs> bless everybody. Amen. <laughs> Somebody's be like, he didn't do it for me, but he did it for him. <laughs> the question I want to ask you is this. How healthy is your relationship with God? Like, we know when we have healthy friendships. We can evaluate our friendships and know, oh, I'll spend time with that person. I'm close with that person. We got a good relationship. We're going back and forth. We also know when there's a breakdown in our relationship. We know. But we never take the time to evaluate our relationship with God. We just know that he's always there. He's always available to us. So we'll get to him whenever we can. No, I really want you to take a step back and evaluate how healthy is your relationship with God. Is it healthy? And man, look at it like it's a relationship in your, in your life. Because that's what it is. It's not a religion. It's not a checkbox. In fact, I'll tell you this. The relationship you have with God is more real than any other relationship you have with any other person. He knows everything about you. Your friends don't. If they did, they wouldn't be your friend. <laughs> Let's be real. There are some friends you have that if you told them everything that God knows about you, they'd be like, hey, man, listen, this has been cool, but I need to find a new friend. <laughs> Good luck. But if you really had to take a step back and evaluate the health, of your relationship with God, how healthy would it be? I'm not asking if you're perfect. We all got our struggles, our flaws, but for real, I want you to understand that Paul is saying evaluate to see if you are in Christ. In other words, are you abiding in Christ? Does your time with God show that it's a relationship or a checkbox? Have you lost the joy of prayer? Is it not so easy, especially here in the South, to lose the joy and the awe for prayer? Every single time Brother Steve preaches on prayer, I walk out saying, man, I need to get my prayer life right. I want to pray the way our pastor prays, amen? I'm not saying he's perfect, but man, he set a high standard for prayer, and he wouldn't even like me saying that. But have you lost the joy and the awe of your prayer? If you had to diagnose the health of your relationship with God, where would you be? And here's the great thing. When you look at your relationship with, your, with God and you say, you know what? I've been reading a lot, I've been in the word a lot, he's speaking to me, but I'm not speaking to him enough. Here's the amazing thing. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to another person. You don't have to go take an exam down at Southwest Community College to get back right. All you have to do is go to God and start praying and he brings restoration to that relationship. It's not amazing. I'll tell you, it's the simplest concept, Mr. Mike, but we make it so complicated. I see you. We make it complicated. It's a relationship. He wants to hear from you, and he wants to teach you truth. Jesus calls his disciples friends. One of my favorite texts, John 15, verses 9 to 15, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Don't you love that? As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. In other words, the love that the Father gave to Jesus, Jesus imparted that to us. What we're called to do is go impart that to others. Then he says, remain in my love. <laughs> remain in my love because it's not easy to do. It's hard to remain in the love of Christ when we live in a countercultural world that doesn't want the love of Jesus. That's why they crucified him. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Isn't it amazing how much God wants us to have joy? God does not care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness, but he does care about your joy. 
He wants you to have joy in him. He wants you to be growing in holiness and let that be where you find your happiness. Let your joy be in Christ. I love it. Verse 12, he says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. How can Jesus say that? Because he did it for us. To lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends. If you do what I command you. (laughs) You're my friend if you are willing to obey and follow me as friends do. In fact, they were probably shocked because in the Bible only Abraham is called God's friend. But the word here used for friend when you translate it means, watch this, people who are on intimate terms. When Jesus says, you are my friends, he's saying, you are people that I am on intimate terms with. And you think about the disciples up to this point, they've walked with Jesus, they've lived with Jesus, they've seen him heal people, they've seen him be mocked and spit on and lied about. They've walked side by side with him. They've prayed with him. They fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying with him. They've walked with him for years. I'll tell you this. They have spent time with Jesus to the point where they are on intimate terms with him. The health of your relationship with Jesus is this. Have you spent time with Jesus to the point where you are on intimate terms with him? Have you spent time with Jesus to the point where you are on intimate terms with him? See, if somebody came to you and they said they they were your friend, but they were a complete stranger, you'd be like, hold on, man. We have not done what friends are called to do in a friendship. We ain't no friends. And for a lot of us in this room, I'm not getting on you, but we're calling Jesus our friend, but we have not put in the time or the investment that you put into when it comes to a friendship. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, we're friends, and you didn't know them, you look at them with a raised eyebrow. And I picture Jesus with a raised eyebrow when he says, Luke 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Why do you refer to me as a title of authority, but your life does not look like you are living underneath that authority? Paul's entire conflict with the Corinthians is that they're supposed to have a relationship with Jesus, but in a lot of areas, it doesn't look like it. And I believe it's one of the great tragedies that we have right now in this country is that there's too many believers who have an agreement with God, but they don't have a healthy relationship with God. Meaning, and I'm, I'm, it's real, meaning we have our fire insurance, we prayed to prayer, we repented of our sins, we come to church, we're, we're giving our tithes, but when it comes to an intimate relationship, we're lacking something in that area. If you hear anything I say this morning, please hear this. Jesus Christ wants a personal, intimate, unique relationship with you, with you. He wants one. He wants one. When relationships with people in our lives suffer, it's coming from our relationship with God. I'll tell you this, I'll be honest with you, and I really want you to think about this this morning. We get annoyed with people or we get impatient with people and we wonder why. Whenever I get impatient with my wife, and it doesn't happen often, but whenever I get impatient with my wife, it does happen often. (laughs) I'll be honest. When I get impatient with Hannah and then I look at my relationship with God, I see myself impatient with God too. See, whatever you give in God is probably what you're gonna give to people too. So when you think about prayer, and I just want you to hear me out for a minute. When you think about your prayer life, if your prayer life is all about you getting what you want and not about God getting what his want, when you look at the relationships that you have in your life, those friendships are all gonna be about you getting what you want, not benefiting them. What you're giving God is what you're gonna give to people. What you give God is what you give to people. One of the things I wrote down with prayer, and I love it, 
Prayer is not about you getting your way with God, it's about God getting his way with you. Prayer, and I would love for you to write that down too, I know some of you are. Prayer is not about you getting your way with God, it's about God getting his way with you. I love what Jesus says. The chapter before, he says in John 14, verse 23 to 24, Jesus answered, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to me and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the father who sent me. So for anybody in here, if I can be honest with you, you'll never get a relationship with a person right if you cannot get a relationship with God right. It can't happen. It can't happen. Scripture is more concerned with your relationship with God than with anybody else. That's why number one is love the Lord. That's why number two is love your neighbor. And there's a lot of us in the church that are trying to love other people before we love God and we're pouring out from an empty vessel. And it's exhausting. My favorite thing to do with my wife, we don't do it enough, but my favorite thing to do with my wife is date nights. We love Frida's, man. I love Hueys. Anybody Hueys fans in here, I mean? Sometimes I love Hueys. Dakota loves Hueys. <laughs> You can hear him on the front row. I love Huey's, man. I love going on date nights with my wife. Man, sometimes I get on kicks, man, and I go through phases where I get stuck on something, and it's all I can think about. Right now, it's sugar cookies. I told you that last time. I've been, still been in it, and it's showing because my pants are getting tighter. And I get on these kicks. I saw golf. I wanted to learn golf. I tried it for a couple times. was terrible at it, so I quit. <laughs> you can always tell, man, when you try to pick up a hobby and it's not for you, you learn quick. I just put the golf club down. I said, this ain't for me. I get on these kicks, and for some reason, I don't know where this came from, but out of nowhere, I was on this kick where I wanted to go camping. Anybody go camping in here? Outdoors people? Yeah, I see you, man. Listen, I love the idea of camping. Man, I love the idea of it, man. But when it comes to actual camping, man, that's a grind. I'm going to be honest, man. I didn't know what I was saying I wanted to do. <laughs> I realized afterwards, I told my wife, I was like, I didn't want to go camping. I just wanted to sit by a fire. <laughs> I just wanted to do a fire pit, man. That's all I wanted to do, man. But I wanted to go camping. I was telling the woman that was cutting my hair, she's super sweet, her name's Rachel. She, it's, they were going camping. I was like, okay, I can go camping. I'm going to impress my wife. We're going to go camping. But we didn't camp like how you normally would. Like, I'm sure that y'all like, have a tent and like, got all your supplies and go out to like the woods, like, a, like a, two miles in and just suffer, you know? <laughs> I was like, I know me and Hannah ain't coming back if we do that. <laughs> so what we did is, you know, I call it camping. What we did is we went online and, and rented a tent. <laughs> like Airbnb, but camping style. And so we rent this tent, we drive out there, and uh, it's like 45 minutes away. I felt like I was far out there, but I was like in Oakland. <laughs> I was like, man, baby. In the national park right now. <laughs> There's a subway five minutes away. <laughs> like we in the wilderness for real. And uh, man, we, we get out there and this is where the breakdown happens. So the tent had air conditioning. So, <laughs> so you know, oh goodness, man. Should not have told this story. It's embarrassing. Regretness. It had air conditioning. I should have put some pictures up there. It had string lights on the inside. And uh it had two beds, <laughs> Tempur-Pedic mattress. I'm talking about comfortable, too. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> the, plan, the plan was to bring hot dogs and roast them out on the fire 
We heard it was a restaurant on site. <laughs> but it's true, ain't it? It's true. So we ate at the restaurant. We made reservations. <laughs> oh, man. Our college students don't call it camping. They say, Daniel, you went glamping. Do y'all know what that means? I didn't know what it means. I'm getting older. It means glamorous camping, right? I'm here, glamorous camping. Some of y'all are gonna see where I'm going with this in a minute. <laughs> in reality, though, I will admit, it was not camping at all. What it was is, it was a pretend version of camping that left out the realest parts. <laughs> Somebody like, oh man. <laughs> I wanted to go camping without leaving any of my comforts or luxuries behind. And this taught me a great lesson, man. I'm telling you, the simplest things teach you the greatest lessons, do they not? I wrote this down. In our culture today, and I'm guilty of it, a lot of Christians want to follow Jesus without leaving any of their comforts or luxuries behind. <laughs> There's some people in here that go camping, they're like, amen. <laughs> I follow the Lord. <laughs> I didn't go camping. I went through the motions of camping. And my fear is that many of us in this room aren't falling in love with Jesus because we're going through the motions of a religion. There's a lot of us in here who want to go camping. The Corinthians wanted to live it outright. They wanted to do it right, but Paul's whole challenge to them is this. Why would you want to follow Jesus and leave out the realest parts? When he dealt with them on sexual immorality, it was how can you follow Jesus and still choose to live in sexual immorality when your body is a temple of the living God? You're leaving out the realest parts. I wrote down one other thing. I love this illustration about camping because the whole idea, and all of them fall short at some point, but the whole idea of camping is sacrifice. You sacrifice that which you have of this world to go out and function with far less because it's better and it's enjoyable and it's awesome and it's natural and all the reasons why people go camping. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to truly abiding in Christ, when it comes to loving Christ, the name of the game is sacrifice. I asked our college students the same thing I'll ask you this morning. What are you leaving behind to follow Jesus Christ? What have you left behind? What are you not willing to sacrifice to follow Jesus Christ, to love him, to grow in spiritual maturity? For some of us, when we examine ourselves, the biggest step that we need to take with growing in maturity is simply leaving behind the world, and chasing after Jesus. But not only that, I wanna give you one more thing. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 11. I love Paul's final excitation. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, in other words, your family act like it, rejoice. Which I love that Paul doesn't say when, th when times are going good, rejoice. He says rejoice because Christ is always good. Even when times aren't good, Christ is good. Become mature, be encouraged. What's a sign of maturity? Here it is. The people in your life, you have the same mind and you are at peace and the peace of God will be with you. Number two, relational maturity. Number two, relational maturity, how you love people. Two incredible indicators of our spiritual maturity and are we growing to be more like Christ is number one, spiritual maturity, but number two, relational maturity. Now remember, how you love God is going to affect how you love other people. The whole structure of this point, every cross-reference is gonna go back to that idea. How you love God and what you do in your relationship with him will drastically impact every other relationship that you have in your life. And if we're honest this morning, 11 o'clock service, if we want to be honest, a lot of times we don't love the people in our lives the way Jesus has said we should. Maybe you got it figured out. I don't. Sometimes people are hard to love. And I'll tell you this, sometimes I'm very hard to love. You can ask Hannah, she'll tell you. <laughs> I'm hard to love. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not like... Let's not act like we get along with every single person just right off the cusp. Man, sometimes people are hard to love. But Jesus says love everybody. 
that there's no prerequisites to it. And I love this quote. Uh, I'm pretty sure it'll be on the screen. I love this one. It says, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. So when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, regardless of race, regardless of social status, regardless of convenience, regardless of whether we connect with them or not super well, whether they can talk fantasy football or not, or video games. For me, I love talking about video games, so that's one of my go-tos. Regardless of convenience, do we take Jesus' word seriously? Do we take it seriously to the point where it alters our lives? Because Paul is challenging the Corinthians. He's saying, evaluate how you love other people. Are you of the same mind with the people in your life? Are you an encouragement? Are the people in your life being an encouragement to you? Are they life-giving or are they draining the life out of you? And the only way that you or anybody else can be a life-giver is to know the source of life and to walk with the source of life. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. There are no divisions amongst you. One question I wrote down, I think this will be on the screen, is, and you want to talk about like a real question that would be on a test, is this. Do the people in your life get to know the love of Jesus through your love that you show to them? The people at your workplace, man, the people where you work that don't know Jesus, because there's so many people there, ain't it? And man, it's so hard when they start cussing. It's hard not to jump in and start cussing too, ain't it? Man, when people are drinking and getting drunk, when people are living however they want to live at your workplace and in your friend group, when it comes to smoking marijuana, when it comes to the fastitude of temptations, when it comes to simply how people at your job use their voice. And when you don't jump into it, when you don't jump into gossip, when you don't jump into division causing, that allows them to see the love of Jesus through you. And let me tell you something, the people at your job need the love of Jesus. For your children, for students in here, the people at your school need the love of Jesus. Whether you go to Bartlett High School like I did, whether you go to Bonlin, whether you go to Elmo Park, doesn't matter where you go, whether you're in college, the people you're around in this world and in this city, we live in a hurting city that does not know Jesus. There are so many people in this city that are in poverty. And you might not be able to get them out of poverty, but you can get their soul out of poverty by telling them about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ can break any generational poverty barrier. He can break it. Jesus Christ can break it. I'm telling you, he can break it. So for those in the room, I want to speak to this for just a moment. There are those in the room who are single. There are those in the room who are dating. There are those in the room who are engaged. And there are those in the room who are married. Some of us have been married for three years like me and know nothing about marriage <laughs> except, how, except how to not be selfish, which is something I'm learning slowly but surely. And I know I'm not the only one. Amen. Some of us have been married for 30 or 40 years. How you treat your relationships with people is a reflection of how you treat your relationship with Christ. So in singleness, in marriage, in prayer. I'll tell you something. When you begin to pray selfless prayers, when you pray according to God's will, watch this. When you pray according to God's will, you'll begin to love the people in your life with God's will in mind. It's, it's amazing how drastically it changes everything. That when you pray with God's glory in mind, you love people with God's glory in mind. When you pray with your gain in mind, you will treat others with your gain in mind. I'm telling you, everything from our relationship with God will go back to people. Now, marriage, whether you're single, whether you're engaged, whether you're married, 
I wanna tell you, Paul has a lot to say about marriage. In fact, Ephesians 5, 31 to 33 says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I am talking about Christ and the church, this mystery. I love this verse because when Paul says mystery, he's not saying that marriage is hard to understand. Marriage is not hard to understand. It is a commitment and a covenant between two people. But I will tell you this when it comes to marriage. What he's saying is that your marriage should reveal a mystery. Hear me for a minute. Your future marriage, your friendships, and your current marriage, that they reveal a mystery. What is that mystery? I'll tell you this right here. Your marriage, when it is loving, when it is sacrificial, it reveals the love of Christ to other people in your life. I love this quote on marriage. It's by Ben Stewart. It says, marriage is not just designed by God. It is meant to display something about God. Isn't that incredible? In other words, this is why the devil hates your marriage. This is why the devil hates your singleness. This is why the devil hates your engagement. This is why the devil hates your friendships. Because when you love them with the love of Christ, A godly marriage is one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have in this world. When the lost world looks at a godly marriage, they're pointed to the love of Jesus Christ. When the lost world looks at godly friendships, friendships that don't gossip, friendships that don't tear each other apart, when the world looks at people who are single and not obsessed with getting married but are obsessed with loving Jesus Christ, they're pointed to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And the devil hates that. Hear me today. The devil hates your godly friendships. He hates your godly marriage. He wants to ruin it, and how he's going to try to do it is by everything that Paul talks about in the Corinthians, by division, by sexual immorality, and by temptations. He's going to try to take you down. The first step to overcoming spiritual warfare is addressing that it's there because you won't pray about something that you haven't acknowledged is there. Acknowledge it. Address it. Take it to prayer. And I'm telling you, the devil is a loser. I love when Brother Steve said that there's two lions in the Bible, the Lion of Judah and Satan's described as a lion. One's on the throne, one's on a leash. I don't know when Brother Steve said it, but it was fire and I remembered it. One's on the throne, one's on a leash. The devil is on a leash and when you go to prayer, he has no power. So for anybody whose singleness is ruling their life, let me tell you, when you go to prayer, you will receive the ruling of God's authority in your life. For anybody in whose marriage is falling apart or struggling or just in a hard time, let me encourage you, somebody who doesn't know anything about marriage, I'll tell you what the Bible says about marriage. It's this, that there is reconciliation in the name of Jesus Christ and you are not too far gone. You are not too far gone. There's nothing that the Lord cannot restore in your marriage and he'll take your marriage from displaying the world and he'll use it to display the gospel. Even if you're two, as Paul says a few chapters earlier, two jars of clay that are so fragile and easily broken and easily disruptible, he'll use you to show his surpassing greatness and glory. I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning. I pray it's somebody because marriage is sacred and it's special. Singleness is sacred and it's special. And all through the letters of Corinthians, Paul speaks about being content and having joy right where you are. The tiniest acts of love make the biggest impact, do they not? The tiniest acts of love. I'll tell you, man, I was convicted personally not too long ago, back in August, because I've never met a person who has loved me with the love of Jesus the way my wife has. The way that she loves me is unreal. I have gotten to know Jesus more because of her love for me. And it was on her birthday One of our college students got her a gift. We were celebrating her birthday. It was this big bag, had a whole bunch of gifts in it. 
She pulls one of the gifts out, and it's a back scratcher. And it's nice. It's a nice back scratcher, I'm not gonna lie. And she pulls out the bag, and she goes, oh, Daniel, look. Now, as I tell you this, I'm being vulnerable. You're gonna think I'm kind of a jerk. I'm gonna preface with that. My first reaction was not a good one. I saw the back scratcher. I said, oh, no. And what I thought to myself was, I'm telling you, I thought this. I said, she's going to want me to scratch her back with that for the next two hours. <laughs> I was like, no. The student that gave it to her, his name was Kate. I was like, Kate, what have you done? She gave us a chore for a gift, you know. <laughs> and then all I could think about was me. And I'm kidding you not. This is a true story. She looks at me in this moment. Without a, hes- uh, without a moment of hesitation, she looks at me. She goes, oh, Daniel, look. I can use this to scratch your back. I was convicted. (laughs) I was convicted. On her birthday, she opens her gift and her immediate response without thinking about how it can benefit her is how it can benefit me. And I wrote down in my notes, it's just a life lesson I've learned. What I wrote down is real love is an action that benefits other people. Selfish love is when you only care about what benefits you. A back scratcher taught me that. (laughs) I'm still applying it, trying. And I'll tell you this, it wasn't a, hey, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And for a lot of us, we live by that standard. We live by the standard of, if you love me, if they love me, then I'll love them. You know that that's not the love of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ loved you when you were showing him no love. In fact, Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us which means he showed the love for you by dying for you before you ever knew you needed him to. Isn't that not the love of Jesus Christ? And then Matthew 5, verse 30, 43 to 44, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's easy to love people that are kind to us, but it's a lot harder when people are beating us and torturing us, whether it be physically or with their words, and then we have to pray, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do, but that's the model that our Messiah has set for us, to pray and love the people who do not love us. I wanna tell you this. I do believe this will be on the screen. I think it's my last one on the screen. God takes your smallest acts of love and points people to the cross, which is the biggest act of love ever, ever. You don't have to buy somebody a new car to share the gospel with them. Or we'd all be broke. (laughs) What you have to do is just show them the love of Jesus through your words. And then with your action, I'm telling you, you will see lives changed all across this city. When Jesus was having the skin torn off his back, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And I love when Paul says... Is Christ in you? Have you not realized that Christ is in you? John 15, verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Would you read that last part with me? You can do nothing without me. I wanna ask you, what would it look like if you took this exam, would you? Take home? What would it look like if Tuesday morning, you thought prayerfully about how am I loving God in my life? 
I want to ask you for it. What if this sermon was more than just a sermon you heard on Sunday mornings? What if you took this with you and Thursday afternoons when you're getting off of work or wherever you're going? What if you prayerfully thought, hey, how am I loving the people in my life? You know what would happen? God will continue to mold you and change you all week long. What I want to do, what I have prayed for most in this sermon, number one, is that somebody would get saved. Number two, that relationships would be restored, whether that be up and down or whether that be side to side. But what I've also prayed, and hear me on this, what I've also prayed is that you would walk out of here asking the right questions. So many times we have nowhere, no idea where to go from a sermon. Hear me, ask the right questions and answer them honestly. Personally, where I have been has been asking myself the right questions and then answering them honestly. And God is doing a work in me, and I'm telling you, he is wanting to do that work in you too. But for some of you, you don't know Jesus, and that's your next step.